0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: This episode has been brought to you by Sake Man, a group of sake superheroes bringing sake to the world.
2: You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org.
1: Hey, hey, you're listening to Eat Your Words and Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Irway. This happens to be the last week that we're going to do live recordings in the studio at Heritage Radio Network because, as you may have known, uh, I've heard uh, there's been a national emergency in the U.S. due to the COVID-19 coronavirus that um, has really, um, really shook the New York City food and beverage industry. Um, Restaurants are now capped at uh, 50% capacity. And in Roberta's Pizza, where Heritage Radio Network has a little station um, alongside. I can tell you that looking out into one of the dining areas right now, just outside of the station, is definitely less than 50% capacity, whether that has anything to do with just people not wanting to go out, social distancing or, um, uh, yeah, but it, it doesn't seem to be the same city that it was just a week ago, that's for sure. Um, Jeet, our our Heritage uh, Radio Network engineer here, Jeet Suresh Paul, how has your life changed? I know that you're you're still working for here for the next week, but uh, what's going on with you?
2: Uh, yeah, so pretty much like you said, there's definitely been a change in the amount of people on the streets and on the subways. Uh, both my other jobs are going into remote mode. Mm-hmm. So uh one of them will be relatively easier but I also teach and teaching Eesh. something as hands on as sound engineering over the internet is not going to be as fun for the students or for me but right. <laughs> we'll have to make it work somehow.
1: Well that's really great that you can do that and I'm really I'm really like proud of all the efforts that people are making to Definitely. So that's that's awesome. Um
2: Yeah, otherwise pretty much the same, you know, that's just good. Uh, like I, I I told you before the air that uh, I went to a Vietnamese food place yesterday <laughs> night and had some awesome uh, fried rice. Yeah. So. Oh,
1: <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, there's been like so many efforts to try to like help and support food business and mm-hmm. restaurants, and then there's the also restaurants that have decided to voluntarily close. Right. So it's it's a lot of a uh, conflicting uh, wisdom out there and, and conflicting impulses to to help the greater good it's yeah
2: and uh, i don't know if you heard but i live in jersey city and they've had they have a um, 10 p.m curfew for bars and no. clubs and liquor stores and yeah yeah so it's I, oh it's man. definitely going to be affecting
1: that's going to affect for sure yeah if it's not a total shutdown soon um we also know that in the last month that uh, Chinatown has been particularly hit in Chinese restaurants just across the country.
0: Mm. And
1: um, that's like totally unfair and totally... Total stereotype. Yeah, because, very strange. Yeah, it's just really not cool. So that's why I, um, I'm delighted to have a guest on who uh, whose book I've been so enamored by, and I did not expect to be talking to her about coronavirus at first at all. And we don't we're not going to be talking about that the whole time at all. But um, my guest today is a veteran food journalist. She is the. Um, food reporter at the Globe and Mail that's in Canada since 2015 and her first book just came out a year or so ago called Chop Suey Nation the surprising history and vibrant present of small town Chinese restaurants from Victoria BC to Fogo Island Newfoundland and it is Anne Hui hi
3: hi Kathy
1: how are you Hey, I'm good. Thank you so much for joining us. And you're at home in, in uh, whereabouts do you live? I'm in Toronto. Toronto. Awesome. So um, when this book first came out, I mean, it was so exciting to see somebody who wrote uh, a Chinese-Canadian food history. And um, tell me a little bit about how this a book came about and... Um, you know, in, I know that you did um, some reporting in your work. So, what was the what was the first inspiration behind this book?
3: So, this book has been uh, the product of, of a few years. Actually, it's uh, it all started in 2016 um, when I wrote a story for the Globe and Mail. Um, that basically detailed a cross-country trip that I took for the Globe. Mm-hmm. Um, I pitched this idea to my editors at the time that they should let me drive across Canada, uh, all the way from the West Coast, so from uh, Victoria, B.C., all the way uh, east to Fogo Island, which is this teeny tiny little island uh, off of the eastern edge of, of Canada, and... Um, you know, drive across the country 18 days, visiting as many small towns as possible, meeting as many Chinese restaurant owners as as possible and, and try to figure out something that I, I think a lot of people have wondered kind of off and on over the years, which is why is there a Chinese restaurant in pretty much mm. every small town? Certainly here in Canada, but I know it's 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 not unique to us here in Canada and it, it, across North America, really. Right. Um, so it all came out of that road trip. Yeah.
1: That's amazing, um, and I had no idea actually until I started reading this book that it was such a personal story to you and your family. And I, it, not only was it a personal, it was like a gripping, like suspenseful and poignant story that had me like in tears. <laughs> so, um, Thank
3: you. yeah, well, it, it, as, as I say in the book, and as I've talked about uh, elsewhere, you know, I didn't even realize when I first. Mm. Out on this journey, definitely not when I first set out on that road trip, that this was going to be such a personal story. Right? You know, you and, were and like, I said, "I'm a reporter." I, I this yeah. Idea mm-hmm. in like. Mm, early, maybe spring of 2016. Um, and, and the idea was to answer those questions like, why is there a Chinese restaurant in every single small town across right. Canada? You know, who are these people who run these restaurants? What are their lives like? And and all the while, even as I'm taking this trip, you know, a lot of their stories seemed so almost foreign to me. Mm. Um, you know, and, and, and I was approaching it in very much a, a journalistic, almost anthropological way, <laughs> yeah. because a lot of... <laughs> the lives and and stories that I was hearing sounded um, so different from my own experience as someone who had grown up in, you know, major urban centers and mostly surrounded by uh, quite large Chinese Canadian communities. Um, But it was only after the fact, it was only after my story in the globe and and after my road trip that I learned that I actually had this really uh, personal connection to the subject matter. Mm -hmm. I, I learned that my own parents actually, unbeknownst to me, had, run one of these Chinese restaurants uh, before I'd even been born. Oh my goodness. I
1: want to get back to this story. It's such a special, beautifully written story. Um, But you mentioned all these small Chinese restaurants in these small towns that are dotted throughout the country in Canada and certainly also in the U.S. Um, In the light of the the coronavirus, we are worrying a lot more about these mom-and-pop restaurants that are now targeted um by you know b- basically bigotry <laughs> and um, like in in New York City in Chinatown um far before far before like the social distancing movements of the like last week or so, a lot of Chinese restaurants were reporting a very low um turnouts um they're endangered, a bunch of them closed temporarily due to low attendance. Um, what is that like in Canada, or over the last month or two?
3: Yeah, it's like it's it's a bit of a complicated one to answer because mm-hmm. it's still evolving. Yeah, um, and and even after you know the, I guess the closest comparison that we have right now would be the SARS outbreak. You know, even after SARS happened and, and it hit us here in Toronto quite 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 hard. Mm
2: -hmm.
3: Um, It it was quite a while before we were able to get actual data uh, and and figures that could accurately reflect exactly what had happened. And so I think the actual situation uh, is going to take a while to to kind of, it's going to take a while to shake out and, and, and properly assess um I know just anecdotally though based on you know my own experiences over the last few months of going out to eat in Chinese restaurants and then just hearing uh experiences of friends and other people across the city I mean we've definitely noticed a very similar pattern to what you've just talked about um in New York you know I know that there are a lot of restaurants that my husband and I frequent here in the city that would normally uh, on any other you know given day or 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 year would be packed or, or have lineups that we've been able to easily get into um, and and have the restaurants be three-quarters empty. Um, the The exact reason for it is, is a little bit, I think it's complicated right. to answer where this is coming from. I mean, I think it's too simple to say that it's, at least here in, in, in Toronto, that it's directly attributable only to racism or only to xenophobia. Um, And the reason I say that is because a lot of these restaurants that I'm frequenting and and seeing these lower numbers in are ones that generally uh, rely on for a large part of their customer base, you know, Chinese communities themselves, these are restaurants that typically have mm. uh, really large Chinese yep. customer bases.
2: Mm. And so
3: in a lot of cases, it seems to be Chinese customers themselves who are maybe deciding to stay, stay home, home. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe deciding to self-isolate. So I think that's uh, yeah. an important nuance that needs to be
1: You're absolutely you know, right. in the
3: conversation. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, I know, again, again, anecdotally, just, you know, Based on being uh, having Chinese relatives and and you know talking to my mom and my aunts and my uncles and, and things, I know that they've been choosing to stay home mm-hmm. um, a lot mm-hmm. more over the last number of months. And I think that you know you talked about social distancing earlier, and I think that for a lot of my peer group and uh, a lot of the people I work with and spend time with, for for a lot of us, this idea of social distancing is is only something that we've only really started to do over the last yeah. week or so aggressively. Yeah. But I know that for people in my mom's generation, especially people who are listening to like a lot of Chinese language media, or who have spent a lot of time over the last few months, you know, reading headlines coming directly from China and Hong Kong, where they've been really serious and really aggressive about this kind of social distancing and and self-isolating stuff for many, many months now. um, Uh They've already been kind of, as much as I hate to say it, kind of ahead of the curve on some of that stuff. Um, So I think that's definitely a factor. Uh Um, But on the other hand, I mean, have we all seen, I think, the same kind of, Racism, either whether it through social be through social media directed at Chinese communities over uh, COVID and coronavirus, um, have we all kind of heard some of these messages and, totally. and these memes going around? Absolutely, and and you know, are they disturbing? Absolutely.
1: Yeah, and thank you so much for pointing out that a lot of this is anecdotal and observational, and um, it is it is hard to to really grasp what it is until we have more data. So that's, that's totally fair. I mean, what we can say, though, is is a very uh, scary time to be in a restaurant business.
3: And um, yeah, and I mean, I don't, I don't want to, um, I I definitely don't want to come across as, as, as as saying that racism and xenophobia isn't a part of it. Um, You know, I think that, as with, uh, all things, you know, history and context is, is really, really, really mm-hmm. important. And so when we see memes or when we see rumors or when we see kind of racist messaging out there talking about or talking about kind of how certain communities may be to blame or um, I think we've all seen that really kind of disturbing like bat soup rumor that was, was uh, yeah. circulating no, I see quite that. a while back. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's impossible not to take into context or take into account, you know, the fact that these kinds of messages come with a very specific history. Right. And in the case of Canada and the United States, the history for uh, early Chinese immigrants is that, you know, these are very similar to the messages that uh, that were used initially to keep, you know, Chinese immigrants out of North America. Um, these are messages that kind of echo the the yellow peril, mm-hmm. um, Uh, messages, um, these ideas that, you know, the Chinese needed to be kept out of the U.S., that, you know, uh, discriminatory policies and anti-Chinese policies needed to be put in place here in Canada um, because the Chinese were somehow unclean or that they carried with them disease. You know, in, in my research for the book, I remember wading through newspaper articles right here in Canada that Openly speculated, you know, in, in the early 20th century, that that Chinese restaurants were serving rats,
1: oh my uh, or
3: that they were serving, you know, who knows what other kind of roadkill, and that <laughs> they were questionable kind of sanitary practices, and, and all of this stuff. And so, when we hear about, you know, some of some of some of these kinds of questions, mm. and and uh, see this kind of like behavior being targeted now at Chinese restaurants, it's it's hard not to think about that history.
1: Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you've written a lot about the history um, specific to Canada. And, um, you know, a lot of folks uh, might know a little bit about Chinese American food and how it evolved um, from the migrant workers who are, you know, as the story goes, a lot of them were from, you know, Taishan area in uh, China. And then, you know, they were sort of forced into this industry because they were shut out of other Um, lines of work, and then, you know, just sort of forge a cuisine. Um, What is the exactly the story behind um, the roots of Chinese-Canadian cuisine? Like when, where, and um, yeah, tell us a little bit about that.
3: It's uh, actually, it's quite a similar story here in Canada uh, to what happened in the United States, but um, our timing is a little bit different. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were probably a, a few, there were a few events that that, that uh, maybe distinguish our history from yours a bit. So in, in Canada, uh, a lot of the first Chinese men arrived here in, well, I shouldn't say a lot, but the very first Chinese men arrived here in Canada in the mid-19th century, well, so This would have been around okay. 1858. Mm-hmm. Um, and many of them first arrived to take part in the Gold Rush, which mm-hmm. is very, very similar to the history in the United States. Um, And then later, many more, tens of thousands of Chinese men were recruited to Canada as cheap labor to help build their railroad. Okay. Um, Mm -hmm. And so these were men who had been specifically recruited, um, sought out and brought to Canada because, you know, we needed that cheap source of labor, and they needed people who would be willing to do the most dangerous work, Uh basically. So any jobs or any tasks that involved, say, dynamite uh, or crawling into very small places, uh, those were the jobs that were given to these Chinese men. And in most cases, these men were paid, you know, a dollar a day versus the dollar fifty or two dollars a day that the white local men would have been paid, um, and so that's the history for most of the very earliest Chinese men who arrived here. Uh-huh. Um, of course, as soon as they had arrived, or not long after they had arrived, and, and not long after this work that they'd been originally recruited for had uh, dried up, there were concerns that all of these men who were suddenly here were going to take uh, away jobs from locals or other jobs away from locals.
2: Mm -hmm. And so
3: you saw uh, in a very short period all of these different policies put in place here in Canada um, designed to either push out these men who were already here or to prevent others from coming. Mm -hmm. And so we had uh, here in Canada the Chinese Exclusion Act which actually uh, barred Chinese men from coming into the country altogether. We had a that followed many years of uh, a head tax that saw Chinese men who wanted to come into this country um, having to pay, a, in many cases, exorbitant fee um, in order to come. And so you had all of these policies in place. Uh, we had rules that actually prevented Chinese men from entering uh, the general workforce. Mm-hmm. So, you know, any kind of a, a white collar or... Um, What most would consider the more desirable work was Mm. actually prohibited for Chinese men from entering. Um, And so basically, the Chinese men who were left here in Canada were left with very, very, very few options. Um, Basically, all they were left with was what was considered women's work at the time. So that left them jobs in laundromats, Mm -hmm. in convenience stores, or in restaurants. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of where all of this comes from. That's right. where this history, this long history um, of Chinese restaurants across this country, kind of all started.
1: Amazing. Um, I want to talk a lot about some of some of the fruits of this history um, right after a quick little commercial break. Um, but some of the some of the unique dishes. Uh, that we don't find in America are are, um, fried macaroni, a Quebec (laughs) Chinese-Canadian specialty. So hang in right there, and we'll be right back chatting more with Anne Hoye. This episode is brought to you by Sake Man. What is Sake Man? Sake Man are judo athletes wearing lucha libre inspired masks that act as sake heroes. This team of athletes moonlight as Sake Educational Professionals spreading sake to the world. Learn more about their mission and their favorite sakes at sake to the world.com That's sake to the world.com. All right. We're back chatting more with Anne Hui. She is the author of Chop Suey Nation. And Anne, you, you mentioned that chop suey is sort of this, um, you use it as a sort of uh, moniker for all the, the Chinese food that is uh, fake. <laughs> or you, you were raised to think was like not so authentic Chinese food.
3: Yeah, for me, chop suey is just kind of a, an easy shorthand for describing, as you said, this whole kind of repertoire of dishes that are known as or sold as really worldwide as as Chinese food, uh, and yet if you were to actually visit China, or 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 ask, you know, most people of, of Chinese uh, descent. Uh, about they would they would tell you that they're not actually made in China creations.
1: But then you um, you know going on this long road trip uh, across the country, and certainly with family discoveries, you have a slightly different take on it now. Um, or what did you learn about this cuisine that um, was different than what you were raised to believe about it?
3: Yeah, I mean, I, I am. I come from a Chinese Canadian family. You know, mm-hmm. I grew up. Um, going to a lot of, quote, authentic Chinese or or mostly Cantonese restaurants in the Vancouver area um, when I was growing up. And and so anytime I would come across this other kind of Chinese food, you know, the the chicken balls with the bright red sauce or the chop suey or the... Uh, you know, lemon chicken. Mm -hmm. I I was always kind of mystified by this stuff. And, and, and I really kind of internalized the messages that I heard from everyone around me. Um, and by everyone, I mean, you know, my, my Chinese relatives and and the Chinese restaurant workers around me and and, and whatnot, that this was fake Chinese. I thought that this was, you know, this, this Chinese food was lesser than Mm -hmm. the authentic stuff that, that we ate at home or, or at the restaurants in Chinatown. Um, But when I went out and I started talking to these Chinese restaurant owners in small towns who were serving this chop suey stuff, and I learned the history of this cuisine, you know, this was food that, as I mentioned earlier, was created by these first Chinese men. Uh, who arrived in Canada and the United States, these men weren't trained cooks, right? Mm -hmm, They mm -hmm. were, as we said earlier, they they had been working on the railroad or or as part of the gold rush. They didn't necessarily know their way around a kitchen. They probably didn't know how to cook authentic Chinese food, even if they wanted to. Mm. Um, They wouldn't have had Chinese customers to serve you know, the authentic stuff, too. And they wouldn't have had access to Chinese ingredients, uh, again, even if they wanted to cook this authentic stuff. And so these Chinese men who were already facing, you know, great discrimination, um, all kinds of very real challenges uh, in starting up these businesses, they figured out this way to kind of create this cuisine that was, Appealing to local palates, you know, they they were a little bit exotic in that they mm. were a little bit reminiscent of kind of Chinese-ish flavors, mm-hmm. a little bit exotic, uh, but familiar enough, you know. So, yep. with 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 the chicken or with the beef, they would throw in a little bit of ketchup. Uh Or maybe um, throw things in the deep fryer to get these textures that that maybe locals were more accustomed to. And so it was this kind of mix between a little bit exotic and a little bit familiar. You know, a little bit sweet, a little bit sour, a little bit crunchy or crispy and and, 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 and yet tender. It, it, It was just really kind of... Cool improvisation. Mm, yeah, um, it's this cuisine that really shows this incredibly industrious, entrepreneurial spirit, um, and, and I think there's something really beautiful in that.
1: And look how beloved it is. I mean, it's just it, it, that's telling of itself. You're absolutely right. Um, one of the one of the dishes I was interested by, and actually, you mentioned the the. Uh, meatballs? I, I don't know that... What What did you say again? Chicken balls?
3: Oh, chicken balls. Yeah. yeah. Tell me about those. I've- <laughs> chicken balls are a dish, and I can't say that it's unique to Canada, though it does certainly huh. seem to be more popular here in Canada than in the United States. Hmm. Um, it is a dish that I I, I say with great shame was not familiar with until probably my 20s. (laughs) So as I said, you know, I grew up in Vancouver. I didn't eat a lot of this chop suey cuisine growing up. Um, But after moving to Toronto and after becoming maybe a little bit more acquainted with this chop suey type cuisine, definitely here in Ontario, definitely here in Toronto, chicken balls is one of the like classic chop suey dishes. Mm. Um, It is a deep fried ball of dough that has on the inside, stuffed into it, uh, usually a morsel or kind of bit of chicken. And then the whole thing, and and imagine the ball is about the size of a fist, is dunked into this bright red, shiny, sweet and sour sauce. Whoa. And it is beloved here in, in, in Toronto and really across the country.
1: Wow, okay, that's one thing I don't know that I've had before. <laughs> By the way, I love, Anne, how you write um, in the first chapter or So about how you first discovered these Chinese foods when you were in school and there was like a Chinese culture day and um, and that's when you were like, oh, you're super excited to share your culture and you're like, wait, what are these foods? <laughs> um, because it was like the chop suey type of cuisine and I can totally relate. I had a, s- a similar... Um, situation, um, growing up too. So, uh, yeah, so chicken balls, one of those dishes, um, another dish that I thought was really interesting and I don't know that we've seen much of in the U S was the Chinese Canadian fried macaroni, which looks (laughs) sort of like fried noodles, but, but elbow,
3: is that what it is? Yeah. That's a that seems to be a Quebec specialty because, um, again, you know, until I took this road trip, there apparently were a lot of these kind of chop suey dishes across the country that I had never heard or seen before, And, and that's something I learned on this road trip, is that you know not only are there Canadian-specific chop suey dishes mm-hmm. that are going to be distinct from um, the ones that you guys have in the United States, but there are also Regional. even just kind of regionally exactly. specific across Canada chop suey dishes. And fried macaroni was one of them. Um, I'm not going to try to say the name in French because I will butcher it, okay. but it basically translates loosely into Chinese macaroni. And it's it's like... Almost any other stir fried It looks like a little dish mane. that yeah. you might get. Cool. Uh, in a Chinese restaurant, yeah, but but they use elbow macaroni.
1: Well, I mean, it does speak to what you're saying: this industrious, resourceful, and you know, creative spirit throughout <laughs> um, throughout the regions, um, and and uh, making something that was enduring. Um, so let's talk a little bit about your your personal connect- connection because this was so fascinating to read about. Um, You know, going around the country, you found out that all these, you know, these families got into the food business, restaurant business for various reasons. And then you discovered that after doing this initial article (laughs) and initial road trip that your family did as well. And you shared the story about that. Um, What was it like to discover that?
3: Yeah, so my parents came to Canada in the 1970s um, separately. So my dad uh, and my mom both arrived in Canada in 1974, I believe. Mm -hmm. Um, And for most of my young life, my dad did work in restaurants. Um, He owned a a series of restaurants in my younger years. Um, But they were what we called, quote, Western restaurants okay. uh, and businesses, you know, he, he would cook, you know, roast beef and and lasagnas. And uh, he later had a, a catering company where he would cater these large buffets and, and, and weddings and that kind of thing with mm-hmm. huge, you know, cold cut platters and fettuccine Alfredo. Um, mm-hmm. So that's the kind of food that, that I had always associated with my dad cooking. Mm-hmm. Um, but around the time After my initial uh, chop-suey road trip had happened, again, this is back in 2016, around that time was when my dad was also initially diagnosed with uh, cholangiocarcinoma, which is a kind of cancer. Mm. Um, It's cancer of the bile duct. It's not a good cancer, uh, Mm. or at least it it wasn't in his case. And um, basically what it meant was that I was spending a lot of time back in Vancouver visiting with him, um, just trying to to, to be with him as much as, Mm as possible, flying back and forth between Toronto and Vancouver. And so during one of these visits back home with my dad, you know, I was talking to him about his history. I was talking to him about, you know, what his life had been like before, you know, I was born. And it was in that conversation that he actually started talking about this restaurant that he had owned before I was born called the Legion Cafe. And as I'm asking him more and more questions about it, um, he reveals to me that the Legion was in fact a Chinese slash Western restaurant. And when he showed me the, the menu it was, you know, just like the menus of all of these other restaurants that I had visited. <laughs> Uh, on on this road trip across the country, you know it was chop suey, it was almond chicken, it was lemon chicken and 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 uh, and fried rice. and you know, seeing that menu and finally learning this history, you know all these decades later um, was really stunning to me because it made me realize, I think for the first time or properly appreciate just how little I really knew about. A my dad's life, but also just our family's history. You know, I hadn't really taken the time up until this point where suddenly there was a very real, uh, very real and urgent timeline mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to ask him questions about his life and 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 to ask him about how it was that he and we had somehow wound up here.
1: Amazing. I mean, uh, why do you think it's important, though, to share these stories um, from your dads as well as the other small restaurants uh, serving Chinese food throughout Canada? I think
3: that as relatively recent immigrants, and also as you know, people of color, um, people whose histories in North America, certainly my, my family's history in Canada, are a little bit shorter, quite a bit shorter uh, than what we're used to reading in history books. You know, we sometimes start to internalize this idea that our histories don't matter mm. um, or that our histories are kind of, you know, a, a sidebar to the, the main history mm. of, of this place um, for me in Canada and, and, and probably for you in the United States. But When you start to share these stories and, you know, when I started to learn, for example, my own family's history and, um, you know, I I don't want to give away kind of the ending, but what I learned is that, you know, my family, like many other families, Mm. had a bit of a secret. Um, And that that secret that I ended up learning tells this really, really, really fascinating part of Canada's history that I had known so little about before. And... You start to realize that you know all of these personal stories, all of these personal histories, really—they're not the the sidebar mm. or the the kind of uh, the the if you're reading the history book, you know, sidebar article 1.1. 1. 1, you know, they they are in fact they actually tell the main story um, of a country like Canada, where so many of us are people who would come from away. Um, and And when you piece together all of these really kind of fascinating personal stories, that is our country's history you know it It, it tells such an important and essential part of our country's history and, and 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 is so instructive, i think, in so many ways and and teaches lessons that I think are uh so relevant
1: mm-hmm.
3: perhaps now more than ever
1: absolutely and Thank you so much for uncovering these stories um and prying them out of your your, your father, <laughs> persist with persistence, um, and and also for for going around and uncovering and telling those stories of so many that really really help illuminate the history of a fascinating cuisine um, that deserves every bit the attention you know that you've given it, and I hope it continues. Um, Thank you. Yeah. It, it, I, you know, this has been a really sprawling interview, and <laughs> there's been there's so much we could I say. feel Like
3: I've just been rambling. I'm sorry. Uh, no, no.
1: I mean, there's there's just so many facets. You know, I think that that's telling in its own. There's so many facets to your story, to your book, to that is relevant to anything going on in the world of restaurants, really. So, um, you know, and and congratulations to you. I know this book was nominated for an IACP award. Um, so which has been postponed? Yeah, so um, the awards will be announced at a later point. But uh, this is really exciting. So um, I hope everyone gets. And now it's out in the U.S. Um, So you know, I I know at first it was only out in Canada. So um, I hope everyone gets their hands on Chop Suey Nation. It's a fascinating read. It's an important read, and uh, it's a beautiful read. So um, thank you again, Anne. Thanks, Kathy. All right. And uh, thank you, Jeet, our engineer. And uh, we'll see you uh, when we see you on Heritage Radio Network uh, when we're able to record again. So, so and thanks, everyone, for, for keeping everyone safe at the station. And hope everyone stays safe and healthy where you are. Thanks, thanks again for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Teach Your Words is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritageradionetwork.